Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The separation of children from their dark-skinned parents. The description of dark-skinned people trying to escape inhuman conditions as rapists and criminals. The federal government coming after them in some cities and states declaring themselves sanctuaries. What's happening now has some striking parallels to the decade leading up to the Civil War, when the Fugitive Slave Act divided Americans and forced them to confront the question of when to submit to an unjust law and when to resist. For that history, we turn to Andrew Del Banco. He's the Alexander Hamilton Professor of American Studies at Columbia. Time magazine named him America's Best Social Critic, and President Obama presented him with the National Humanities Medal in 2012. His new book is a great one. It's called The War Before the War, Fugitive Slaves and the Struggle for America's Soul from the Revolution to the Civil War. Andrew Del Banco, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Well, slaves who escaped from their masters and made it to free territory were a political issue from day one of the United States. The Constitution, to our shame, includes a clause requiring that runaway slaves be returned to slavery. In 1787, anti-slavery was a fairly new idea, but the opponents of slavery tried to block this fugitive slave clause in the Constitution and failed. Why did the slave owners succeed at the Constitutional Convention? Well, I think one one reason is that it was pretty evident that uh, if the if the project of putting these basically two different nations together into one was going to succeed, certain concessions had to be made. We, in retrospect, can fault them, and we can we can shame them, and we can denounce them, and I'm quite sympathetic to those kinds of denunciations. But the political reality at that moment seems to me to have required concessions about slavery. The Fugitive Slave Clause, as you know, is not the only one. I think, it, I think many, if not most, of the founders, including some from the slave states, really did believe that slavery was on the road to extinction. And then in 1850, Congress passed a fugitive slave law, and the president signed it. You call it a law without mercy. What did the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 say? Well, everything it said was in favor of the slave owners. It denied the accused fugitive the right of habeas corpus, the fundamental right enshrined in the Anglo-American legal tradition that gives a defendant the right to contest the legality of his detention in open court. 
It denied the right to a jury trial. It denied the right for the defendant to testify in his own defense. It made it a federal crime for any citizen to come to the aid or assistance of a fugitive. It created, or at least enlarged, a whole new class of federal officials called commissioners who had the authority to return fugitives to slavery without any semblance of due process. So in 1850, the federal government made it a crime to shelter an escaped slave, and it required local authorities to help capture escaped slaves and to return the help return them to slavery. It's not hard for us today to see how that raised directly the question of whether to resist an unjust authority, how to do it. Many in the North, as you say, did, including not just individuals, but cities. And tell us about the resistance to the Fugitive Slave Law. Well, the resistance, the initial resistance was most dramatic in Boston, which was in many respects the nerve center of the abolitionist movement. One of the first slaves to be arrested under the Fugitive Slave Law, known as Shadrach, was uh, sprung out of, out, of, out of prison by uh, a mob that invaded the courtroom and uh, whisked him away and through various cities and towns north of Boston, he, he made his escape to Canada. After that happened, uh, the authorities got more serious about uh, defending against that kind of uh, public response. And there were several more cases in which uh, fugitive slaves were convicted and returned um, to, to servitude in the South, the most notorious perhaps being the case of 1854 when Anthony Burns was um, returned on a ship from the pier of Boston Pier to, to, to service, as they said euphemistically, in the South. That event radicalized uh, the anti-slavery movement in the North. Persons who had been in the middle now shifted to the left, including, for instance, the industrialist uh, Amos Lawrence, who uh, wrote after the rendition of Anthony Burns, we went to bed as good, conservative, compromised unionists, and we woke up as stark, mad abolitionists. My favorite case of resistance is Wisconsin, where an escaped slave named Joshua Glover was captured in 1854 under the Fugitive Slave Act, held in the Milwaukee jail. What happened then? Very simple. A, a, a large group of people, mostly black, entered the jail and with an a, enormously long piece of timber, battering ram, I guess you could call it, they knocked down the door and sprung him out of jail, and that was the uh, end of the detention of Joshua Glover. And then the Wisconsin Supreme Court declared that the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 was unconstitutional, and then the Wisconsin State Legislature refused to recognize the authority of the United States Supreme Court to enforce the Fugitive Slave Law. That's pretty striking. Right, it is, and it points to a larger issue, maybe a paradox. The Fugitive Slave Law stimulated what we could call secessionist sentiment in the North. I mean, when Emerson objected, to it in 1851, he went so far as to say, uh, we are two countries, one civilized and Christian, one barbarous, and the idea that there should be a linkage between these two countries no longer makes any sense to me. 
this is this is an aspect of the story that I think is somewhat overlooked, and it actually runs all the way up to the eve of the Civil War when we when we find abolitionists like Wendell Phillips uh, reacting to the firing on Fort Sumter by saying, you know, they have a right to go. You say letting the South go its own way would have been a victory for slavery, that destroying the Union would, you write in the book, actually strengthen slavery rather than weaken it. How could that be? Well, there was a sentiment in the South that uh, there was the federal government that was constraining the expansion of slavery, right? And uh, if, the, if the South were, became a self-governing political entity, there were those who believed that uh, there could be a re-engagement with Mexico and more Mexican territory could be seized for the cultivation of crops to be raised by slave labor. Uh, the Caribbean was ripe for development. Uh, Cuba was another possible place to go. And uh, a cleaner, simpler alliance with Britain might have been possible. Um, which was, of course, a main customer for the export crops. Now, you know, I'm not saying that would have happened. It's, a, it's one of those historical what-if questions. What I am saying is that in order to try to enter into the mind of mid-19th century Americans with scruples and principles and even convictions that we might respect, uh, we have to entertain the the, the possibility that their anticipation of what might have happened was based on 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 some form of reality. Lincoln was of the view that the to put slavery, as he often stated it, put slavery in the path toward ultimate extinction. That that required an integrated union. Uh, I don't mean racially integrated. I mean a sectionally integrated union which would eventually evolve to the point where the institution of slavery would wither away and die. Now, we don't know whether that would have happened either. What we know is that the war came and the war became the instrument for the destruction of slavery. As my colleague Eric Foner often says, there are basically two schools of thought about the Civil War. One is that it was a political failure and the political system could have worked it out. The other that it was an irrepressible conflict, to use uh, William Seward's famous phrase. I've come closer to that second position through the work I did on this book. But yet, I think we can allow ourselves to read with some sympathy and empathy those who wanted to avoid the catastrophe of civil war. At the end of the day, I mean, what you know, how many of us are prepared to say war is the right way to solve political or moral problems. It takes a lot to drive contemporary progressives to that position, I, I suspect. And so I think we find in 1850 a lot of people in Lincoln's position who hoped that there would be a path toward the abolition of slavery that would be short of secession and short of war. Well, let's conclude by talking about the parallels between fugitive slaves in the 19th century and undocumented immigrants today. Any responsible historian, of course, should be wary of parallels between past and present. But it's kind of impossible to overlook the echoes, or to close one's ears to the echoes. Sanctuary cities, 
the rise of what I call at one point in the book, the first Black Lives Matter movement. Now, the Black Lives Matter movement of today is perhaps not directly connected to the illegal immigration problem, but the, 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 the great connection among all these elements is, of course, uh, racism. The sad truth is that the country in the middle of the 19th century was shot through with the conviction of white supremacy. And although politicians today are more uh, wary of explicitly identifying themselves as white supremacists, uh, explicitly denigrating people of color, uh, that theme is the undercurrent in the immigration debate. As much as reasonable people could disagree about what is the right immigration policy and what are the right border controls, uh, and on what grounds should we admit some, and how should we define refugees and asylum, all of those are debatable questions. What's not debatable, I think, is that we have witnessed a resurgence of basically racist antipathy to people of color fleeing desperate conditions, which may not be technically equivalent to slavery, but are conditions under which no person with a choice would wish to live. So, you know, the fugitive slaves of the mid-19th century were crossing an internal border. They were undocumented. They were illegal in that sense. And they had no citizenship rights. And the illegal immigrants of today are crossing an international border. And so the parallels are uncomfortably distinct, despite the salient differences. Andrew Del Banco, his book about fugitive slaves is called The War Before the War. Andrew, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.